Welcome to Teen Peds Talks, a podcast series from the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners featuring NAPNAP experts and stakeholders addressing key issues in pediatric health. This series will focus on children in foster care. Teen Peds Talks is available wherever you listen to podcasts by searching Teen Peds Talks on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or on anchor.fm. My name is Bridget Van Graflin, and I'm an associate professor at Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. I've been a pediatric nurse practitioner for 33 years and a nursing educator for over 20 years. I've practiced extensively in underserved rural and urban primary care settings. My scholarship focuses on improving outcomes for children and youth in foster care, child maltreatment, and human trafficking. I'm the chair of the NAPNAP Child Maltreatment Special Interest Group and chair for the Alliance for Children in Foster Care. Hi, I'm Tracy Hallis, and I'm a pediatric nurse practitioner with my primary mental health specialist certification. I've spent the last 15 years working with children and adolescents with a history of child maltreatment and currently work at the Medical University of South Carolina in their foster care support clinic. Um, I've spoken nationally on topics related to youth and foster care and serve currently as the co-chair um, for the Alliance for Children in Foster Care for NAPNAP Partners. Bridget and I, as um, chair and co-chair for the Alliance for Children in Foster Care, are delighted to host this series for you. Up to 80% of youth in foster care have at least one mental health problem, and close to 50% of kids in foster care will not graduate with a high school diploma. Statistics show that between 50 to 90% of youth victims of sex trafficking have a history of placement in the foster care system. The mission of the Alliance for Children in Foster Care is to nurture a sense of belonging, connection, and safety for children in foster care by one, empowering all pediatric-focused advanced practice nurses to incorporate trauma-informed health care as an essential set of services provided to all children in foster care, and two, promoting equitable and optimal growth and development. Thank you for joining us for this conversation about the health and wellness of children in foster care. So hello, this is Tracy Hallis. Um, I have two exciting guests that are here with us today. We have Dr. Mary Greiner, Greiner, who is a child abuse pediatrician and the medical director of the Comprehensive Health Evaluations for Cincinnati's Kids Check Foster Care Center at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Dr. Greiner has used her work with the Check Center to inform the study of issues related to health disparities for youth in foster care, including piloting and setting interventions to address identified needs for youth in foster care, including substance use prevention and the role of data sharing between healthcare systems and the child welfare systems to improve health outcomes. And then we also have Julie Diverstel, um, who is a pediatric nurse practitioner at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center and is the lead APRN for the Check-In Program, a collaboration between Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center and the Hamilton County Jobs and Family Services, providing nursing consultations for children's services. Check-In provides over 500 consultations a month to children's services, including home visits with caseworkers, education for child welfare child welfare workers, and coordinating care and communication for children involved with child welfare. Julie is also a provider in the Comprehensive Health Evaluations for Cincinnati Kids Check Foster Care Center at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. So I'm excited to have both Julie and Dr. Greiner here today. Um, They are a wealth of knowledge related caring for kids and foster care. And so please welcome them. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. 
We're excited for you guys to be here, and I can't wait to kind of hear what you guys have to say. So today we're talking about the American Academy of Pediatric Guidelines and Caring for Youth in Foster Care. And so I thought we'd start with just if um, you could tell us a little bit about the specific AAP guidelines for caring for youth in foster care. Yeah, absolutely. I can get started with this one. Um, so the AAP guidelines have been evolving over time, um, but essentially, initially, there was sort of a recognition that that kids who were in protective custody and foster care had increased health needs. So um, higher rates of mental health concerns and developmental concerns, but also physical concerns as well, like asthma and allergies. And so a recognition that there was a more health burden and more risk, um, but not real clear guidelines about what to do about that. Um, and so a group involved with the AAP um, put out sort of the first recommendations through um, a book called Fostering Health um, that used expert opinion and consensus to put together some ideas of what are, what are the things we should be doing in particular for this special population and their healthcare needs. Um, what's interesting um, is that expert opinion um, has evolved over time as we've been able to add data and research um, and as we see more you know, foster care clinics coming out, we see more child welfare research programs that have been able to do more rigorous science and sort of add to that conversation and say, yes, but also we need to do this, or we may only need to do it in this different way. Um, and so I think we're still really in sort of an evolution of what the recommendations for kids in foster care will be. And my, my guess is that 10 years from now, it'll look very different than they do at this moment. Um, but the basic way to think about those AAP recommendations around kids in protective custody is early and often. And that's probably like the easiest mantra to remember is we wanna see them as soon as possible. Um, and then we wanna to continue to see them frequently um, knowing that issues may come over, up over time. Um, and so there are some specific recommendations from the AAP um, that can be combined with state requirements and other, other guidelines that, that you may have as a provider um, but that first visit is that we want to see a child almost as soon as they come into this new placement, um, realizing that they've had a trauma right then. So removal into foster care is almost always a traumatic event for that child right there. Um, and that they're usually with new caregivers who may not know their entire health situation. Um, and so it's really an opportunity to try to see them very quickly to say, where can we make sure care is continuous? Where are there opportunities for preventive health care? Where do we need to do chronic disease management, both to stabilize and support that child, but also the caregiver to say, hey, let, let me tell you, you're now caring for a child who has asthma. Here's how we, you know, here's what you might need, and here's well, we can teach you about that and when we want to see you back. Um, so we have all of that aspect of that early visit, um, which the AAP recommends within 72 hours. If you look at state guidelines, almost every state has some type of recommendation, but they vary pretty widely. Um, from five business days here in Ohio is what we're working with. Um, others are seven days, 14 days, 30 days, and even more. Um, and then that second piece is that often piece. Um, and so we know that, that one kind of checkup for a child who's come into care is not sufficient and that their, their situation, their symptoms, their illness, all of that is really evolving. Um, and so we want to see them back frequently to see how things are going. How can we support that child? How can we support that caregiver? Um, so typically within 30 days, we really want a comprehensive evaluation that's going to include looking at development, looking at um, mental health concerns, um, the, that dental piece, which can be really hard to find a good provider for and get that piece as well. 
Um, and then we want to continue that frequency. Um, so it, it's easy to think of it as about twice as often um, as the general population. Um, so when you think about those um, bright futures, periodic recommendations, you want to look at about twice that. Um, and so for our, our younger kids, um, it can be weekly when they're newborns, um, spreading out to monthly, to every three months, to um, as we get to school age and teenagers looking at every six months rather than just once a year. Julie, do you have anything to add? Um, I would just add that that it's to keep in mind with those frequent visits is that we have to remind our healthcare team of the need of that and the caregivers of that that what and why we want to see those kids so frequently. Can you talk a little bit about why it's so important, I guess, to see those kids so frequently compared to youth that are not in foster care? I think that there's so many dynamics that um, when kids are in protective custody that are entering in um, to that to their overall health um, that when you see them initially, you know, there may be a few days after they've been placed into either kinship home or foster home or group home, some type of protective custody, that there's a lot of of trauma, like Dr. Greiner said, but also that shock of what you, when you see that child initially, you may not be seeing all of the that child because they're kind of shut down from what have happened. Or you may see the opposite. They may just be totally dysregulated because of what's going on. So seeing them frequently allows not only that continuity of care and you getting to know that child and the caregiver, but then also seeing how things may be dynamically changing um, that you can pick up on earlier than if you're seeing them say you don't see them back for three months, that there may be health concerns that have started to derail, mental health concerns that are derailing, that if you had seen them earlier, you could be addressing earlier and keeping it from becoming a crisis type situation. Do you have anything you want to add to that, Dr. Greiner? I think, I think those are great points. I think it is really important um, to support our families and our kind of primary care and other providers in helping them to understand why we need to see see children with that frequency, um, because it can feel like a lot. You know, when a child comes into protective custody, a family might feel pretty overwhelmed with establishing visitation and having visits from their caseworkers, and then they have all these required healthcare visits, and they say, you know, this kid looks okay to me. Like, why do we have to come in so much? And so, mm -hmm. really doing a lot of education around that um, is really helpful, and also with our our partners in primary care to say. Like, yes, I've done, you know, a consultation, but we still need this child to establish a medical home. And that's a really important relationship for you to have with them. So, yes, even though they saw me last week, I would love for them to see you this week and start that relationship. And it's another check-in point. Um, and I think just sort of giving some examples to our partners, like, you know, you saw this kid yesterday. Why do you need to see them again today? Well, if they're in a whole new placement, like they could be with a, you know, a kinship placement with a grandmother who hasn't cared for babies in many, many years. And a lot of our, our guidelines and approaches towards babies have changed. So we need to meet and talk about safe sleep and feeding and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, or it could be, you know, a school age kid who has a pretty complex chronic health condition and we need to make sure that their medications have come with them and that their specialist appointments are there. And so even if I know the kid pretty well, it's an opportunity for me to help that new caregiver to get to know that kid pretty well. 
Yeah, I um, think ideally, so. Oh, sorry. No, I was say, yeah, because they're so, they're so complex as far as, and it's just also just allowing to build that relationship that you're talking about um, so that you can provide that education. Exactly. And I, I think we don't spend enough time probably talking about our families of origin, but having opportunities to involve them in healthcare as well um, and letting them, when it's safe and appropriate, participate in that healthcare, be a part of that learn and understand what their child has been diagnosed with and what treatments we're putting into place and have them be a part of that team that can be really helpful, I think, towards child welfare goals as well as we hopefully work towards reunification. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think so often um, I'm on the opposite side, I think, in the primary care with kids in foster care versus like the child abuse side that you guys are on. Um, and I think with the kids with the, such complex needs, a lot of times their immunizations are, you know, delayed. Um, they need like lab work. They need all those things. But those multiple appointments allow so that you're not doing everything at once and kind of over overwhelming that kid in that first visit. If you see them more often, you can kind of spread things out as appropriate so that you're just not, you know, it's not everything wham, bam, kind of all at once. Um, which I think yeah. adds an extra piece. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it lets you spread things out. It lets you address issues as they come up. You know, I can't tell you how often I'll see a child for that first visit within a few days and, and the foster family says, everything looks great. I'm not sure why there are any worries. We don't have any concerns or problems at all. And I say, great, <laughs> let's do a little education about what might be coming. And then let me see you back, you know, next month or in a couple of weeks and then we're like, oh, wait, we're seeing this and this and this. Yeah. And like, mm, like that child's getting comfortable and you're starting to see more of their trauma. And let's see what we can do to help support that. But sometimes, oh, sorry. Go, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. Sometimes being able to talk with the families and caregivers before some of those behaviors have come out can be really helpful to prepare them to say, you know, I know things are looking really great right now and that's awesome. Um, and I know that you're really enjoying having this child in your home, but let's remember, like, this has been a big trauma for them. And here's some things you might be seeing. And as time goes on, you might see this behavior or that behavior. And here's how you might manage that can really help to sort of prevent some of the crises that can come with placement. Billy, do you have anything you want to add? I think that anticipatory guidance is so key um, in working with with families that are helping to care for these kids um, that um, it may look, there's a lot of the anticipatory guidance that we give that is just our standard anticipatory guidance for kids and helping them know what are the next stages that are coming. But there are some really unique things about kids that are in protective custody um, that can really make a difference for, for their caregivers in, in anticipating what, what might occur and how to deal with it. So we've talked a lot about just kind of kids in foster care have complex needs as far as their high risk for kind of um, behavioral, developmental, medical needs and need to be seen more often. Uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, you said anticipatory guidance and just education and providing these kids kind of, you know, in, you know, anticipatory, like, so knowing kind of what's to, what's to come, what to expect, because like you said, there definitely can be this honeymoon period where everything looks fine and then you everything is not so fine and we're having issues and you're seeing the effects of trauma. What advice do you have for primary care providers? Because a lot of times it's a busy practice or seeing kids, you know, they're in and out of the office quickly. Um, how do you help or tips do you have for, for providers in order to help adequately make sure that kids in foster care are getting what they need because they do have more needs a lot of times than, than kids that are not in foster care? I think it's really important for primary care providers to to 
not get overwhelmed by it because it can very, very, very often seem very overwhelming. When you're looking at it, when you're doing some chart prep and looking through, you may not have any information and you need to now put on your detective hat and figure out how you can find some past medical history um, to looking at a chart and realizing that this is a child that has really complex needs um, that is going to require many referrals and um, guidance for the family and helping to narrow that down. So setting expectations as early as you can with caregivers, even from scheduling of like some some understanding of what this appointment is going to go like and be like in that we will focus on the most important needs in this moment. And then in the appointment, to, to really try and narrow down what are the biggest concerns that the caregiver's having? What are the biggest concerns that you as the provider have in that moment? And how do you address those in that short appointment and then set some expectations for the next one. So it may be that you have a child that has asthma and you don't really know a whole lot about it, but what the caregiver is telling you that the biggest concerns are in that moment are behaviorally, and you get the feeling that things are okay asthma-wise, you may only provide a little bit of, you know, what, and it's some emergency asthma needs. Let's make sure that they have an inhaler and a spacer and the caregiver knows how to use it and when to use it and an asthma action plan. And the rest of that appointment is going to be how do we help calm things down in the home between the caregiver and the child and the dynamics of things so that we can get to the next appointment and start addressing some of those immunization, asthma, other health needs other mental health needs um, and and staying focused on that, what you're dealing with in that appointment. I think that's such great advice because there's like a lot of times multiple problems and you can't fix everything in one problem. So kind of prioritizing. What about you, Dr. Greiner? What advice do you have? I think that that is a really, really important reminder is that we can't we can't do everything for every kid and every family in one visit. And, and our families and caregivers don't expect us to. And it can be really overwhelming for them too when they come in with, you know, two pages of notes of their different concerns and problems and they're trying to check all their boxes and fix them all. Um, And so I really love that idea of just saying like, what is most important to you to address today? What are you most worried about? And then here maybe is something as a provider that I'm most worried about that I I want to share with you as well today. I think on the flip side, sometimes there are providers who perhaps are are not um, as informed about issues related to child welfare or foster care, or maybe overwhelmed and don't wanna start, and will sort of ignore that entire piece. And so you might see a child present to a provider in primary care or elsewhere, and there is no mention that that child is in foster care, you know, there's sort of this review of their physical symptoms and then see you back next year, and you think, oh goodness, like we missed such an opportunity there. And I, I think that can happen Um, because some of our providers may not feel comfortable sort of opening a Pandora's box and and are worried that questions and and issues will come out that they don't know how to address. Um, And so I think that's really a time to sort of partner if you have child abuse team people, if you have foster care health team people, to make that relationship to say, even ahead of time, I've got a kid coming in, I've seen your last note, here's what I was thinking today, what else do I need to know? Or I have an unusual situation and you know, I'm, I want to give immunizations, but I'm not sure about consent here. And can you talk me through who I need consent from? 
um, because we, we really don't want to ignore foster care status in any of our visits. It's such a big part of our, our kids' lives and the caregivers. It sort of controls everything that they can do and what's moving forward. Um, so it's really, I think, about striking that balance between acknowledging, like, yes, this child is in an unusual social circumstance and they are in the custody of their county or state, but are placed you know, with this person right now, and that's gonna change how things are going. Um, but also I don't have to solve every issue that they have or concern that they have today. And you know, even deciding to break that up to say, you know, how about I have you come back next week and we can we can make those next issues or or splitting up siblings. A lot of times we have caregivers who want to come with a large sibling set and it gets so overwhelming for everybody that we can't can't make much progress. So saying, let's do a visit just one-on-one -on -one with one of these. Who are you the most worried about today? And then we'll get to each of the other siblings over time. So just finding that balance, I think. I think that's so important. I think um, I think reminding it's like you said, lots of people don't like to address that they're in foster care because they feel like it's overwhelming. They don't even know how to get in touch with a caseworker in those pieces. But um, trauma looks like a lot of things. So it's important when you're considering your differential, like, you know, trauma looks like ADHD, it can look like depression, anxiety, all of those pieces. So making sure that um, you kind of, you can't really ignore the elephant in the room. Um, and I'm going to kind of go rogue here for a second, because I know that I'm used to working with child protective services and you kind of touched on like not everybody, you know, that's their cup of tea and they're for whatever reason, you know, don't want to delve into it. For those that are like not used to working with child protective services, if they need information or they need to track down records or those pieces, what advice do you give to them to kind of help them, you know, dip tip their toe in the in the water of like learning kind of how to navigate the system and um, just kind of wanted to get if y'all had any bits of advice that you could give providers. Julie, I'm going to let you start on that one because your role of being co-located and working so close with child welfare is really suited for that. Yes, I would say understanding what your system is like where you live. So for example, in Ohio, our child welfare is by county, but in Kentucky, which is just across the river from us, is a state-run program. So understanding those nuances of the of children's services in your area, um, looking for um, any outreach that children's services do. I, I know that our Hamilton County where, where we're located at does a, their children's services does outreach to different um, practices and providers to for understanding of how does the child welfare system work, knowing how to contact um, the hotline or reporting. Um, and then that's a, a good entry into finding out who a caseworker is. But having that collaboration is so important of um, when you are concerned, you see a child um, and you're making multiple referrals or there's concerns for mental health of not just sending a letter, but also reaching out through email or a phone call to say, hey, I saw this child that's on your caseload today um, and I'm concerned about this particular thing. Here's what I did about it. I'd like to have a conversation with you so we can make sure that that these services are are being put in place or to understand what do I need to know as a provider to put these services in place? Do we need to get family of origin consent to for mental health services? Or this child is, is likely going to need surgery. And in your particular area and state, what is needed to be able to do that? Is that 
the county or the state worker that's signing off on that? Is the family of origin involved? How can we make sure that we're involving them? So, so doing some anticipatory um, outreach can be really beneficial of, of understanding what your particular area systems look like. Mary, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think making those connections and reaching out is so important. I think probably like the first piece of advice I would give is just to assume good intent of our, our child welfare professionals and colleagues. Like there, I can assure you there is no one in the world who works for child welfare because they are cold and don't care and aren't aren't interested in doing anything. Like that is just not a job you go into if you don't care very passionately about children and their outcomes. Um, and so going into encounters with child welfare, understanding a little bit about what it's like to be a child welfare worker and how many cases they may be carrying and you know how many fires they might be trying to put out. And while your issue seems like the most important one in the whole world, if you know they've got kids that don't have a place to stay that night and they're prioritizing that, you know they may not get back to you quite as fast, but it doesn't mean they don't care or don't want to do anything. Um, and so kind of going in with an understanding of I, I know you care very much about this kid. Here's what I'm worried about. And maybe here's what I can do to sort of help in the short term. And here's the support I'm looking for the long term. Um, I think that attitude can sort of change the whole dynamic from being sort of oppositional and feeling like you're in conflict with child welfare, which really healthcare should never be in conflict with child welfare. They're, they're our best partners. Um, and then secondarily, like where are there opportunities for systems to make that collaboration easier. Um, and so, you know, asking every provider to reach out to the caseworker and every caseworker to reach out to the provider is awesome, but it's a lot and it can't happen on every single patient. And so where are there ways where we can improve sort of how our systems work together? So here, here in Cincinnati, we've worked really hard on information sharing. And so we developed a system that shares information near real time between the healthcare system and the child welfare system through a data portal. Um, and so we realized that even when we were both working really hard on our respective sides, if we weren't sharing information that was up to date, it wasn't helping kids a lot of times at the end. So we would make recommendations, they wouldn't get to the caseworker, they wouldn't be followed, we'd see the kid back. And it was leading to all of these issues. Um, and so now we have this countywide system that we're working on expanding and adding additional counties and hoping to go statewide ultimately that pulls information out of the electronic health record every day, out of the child welfare database every day, puts it into a portal so that we as a healthcare worker can log in and see, oh, you know, this child is in temporary custody or permanent custody, and that's going to change how we need to get consent for this upcoming procedure, or this child has had a placement change and I'm supposed to see them in two weeks. I need to reach out to these new caregivers and let them know what's going on. Um, and similarly, our child welfare professionals have access to the important pieces of that child's medical information updated every day. So they're seeing their updated child record every day. They're seeing their problem list. They're seeing their upcoming appointments. So when they make a placement change, they can say, oh, okay, this kid is involved with three specialists. You know, we need to reach out to the hospital before we make this change. Or let me print off a list of upcoming appointments and bring it to this new caregiver so they don't feel like they're going in blind. So I think, you know, we ask a lot of our providers and our child welfare professionals and, and but also figuring out ways where the system can make it easier for everyone to do their job is really important. 
I think that's important. That's awesome as far as your system. I think it's so important as far as communication because a lot of times you can do all these things in the visit and you can recommend all these things, but if things don't follow through, like it doesn't really help the kid. So it's really important. And I think um, the kind of the, the system and model that you guys have is phenomenal. I, I would um, just for our listeners, for those that don't have that, something just simple as writing it down because a lot of times the, the foster parents will share that sometimes with the caseworker. And so you know, it's not necessarily the best system, I guess, but a way to make sure you're telling them verbally, like, you know, just anything in healthcare, whether you're teaching and, and giving it to them in, in a written fashion so that hopefully um, it, the message gets pushed, passed along as well. Um, so I know that you talked about other. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to add one other thing in, in my role in working with the caseworkers on a daily basis. One thing that I've, I've really noticed is that as healthcare providers, we don't always recognize that our lingo is not understandable, oh, even when we think we're simplifying it. And in, you know, I'm, I work with the caseworkers every day and, and know that this may be their, you know, hundredth child that they've had a case with that involves failure to thrive, but really helping them to understand, because I've had caseworkers say, but they gained weight. And, and so really helping when in that communicating with the caseworker of, of issues of making sure that they're understanding why we're concerned about it and what it means to the health of the child. Um, Cause they may not have that, that background and knowledge of what really that means. I think that's so important. I feel like even in healthcare, I joke sometimes, like I've read something essay and one thing means substance abuse, the other means like sexual abuse. And so like, even just in like, I feel like in what we chart here in our, in our medical record, you know, can have different meanings. And so making sure that everybody's speaking the same language and it's written in a language for our people to understand, I think is so important. Um, so I know we talked a little bit and, and I want to just kind of point out, you know, every, like you said, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics has general guidelines, but every state has different guidelines. And so it's really important to know what the guidelines are in your state. So if you don't know, like um, find, you know, you probably can Google your child protective service and find out some general information um, online as far as that. Um, you, some have, you know, like you said, 72, five up to 14 days. It sounds like y'all use a 72 hour model. And then do y'all see them back in like a, a month in your clinic or in a couple of weeks? What is y'all's, what is your, I guess, uh, process? Yeah, so that the AAP, as you know, kind of defines different approaches to foster care clinics, right? So you've got sort of the medical home model, it sounds like more like what you guys are doing, where children in protective custody get all of their health care needs from their first evaluations, their well-child checks, their sick visits, all in the medical home model. Um, another very different model, which is actually what we use, is the consultation model. Um, so this is the idea that we are not serving as the primary care medical home um, but instead are doing evaluations at, at a certain frequency and cadence that is meant to align, um, kind of supplement and optimize the medical home experience. And so in our particular system, Ohio mandates are around five business days is what we're working with and what our, our goals are for our counties. Um, and so we are fortunate enough to have a, a contract with our county our county of origin, um, that all children who are placed into protective custody in that county are going to come through our clinic. Um, and so we use our, our data sharing platform that we built, um, as well as communication between child welfare and the healthcare system 
to notify us of any child who has come into protective custody or experienced a placement change. I mean, we talked a lot about earlier about why those visits are just as important at those placement changes as they can be for a child coming into custody. Um, and so we then have scheduling staffing from our hospital side who are tasked with um, reaching out, finding that child, um, getting, getting a relationship with the caregivers and then getting them into be seen. Um, we set a goal within five business days to meet our state mandates. I think we do pretty well, um, but it's difficult. It's really, really hard. Um, there are a lot of reasons for why that may be. Sometimes, you know, the, the communication information and contact information isn't right right off the bat. Um, there can be a lot of competing needs for kids who are new to placement. Um, there can be caregivers who have a lot of new children in their home or a lot of things going on. Um, there can be kinship caregivers who are experiencing kind of their own challenges and social determinants of health in terms of transportation and other things like that. So we really work hard to uh, one, make sure everyone's on the same page about why this visit's important and what's gonna happen at that visit and how we can help and support our families. And then two, try to facilitate it however we can. So we have you know, transportation that we could offer a family if that's a barrier or we, um, you know, we have two locations. So we have one that's sort of relatively downtown um, that, that some of our families really like for proximity. Some of our families are very uncomfortable coming into the city. And so we also have a more suburban location for those families as well. So really trying to, to um, have a lot of options to meet their needs. So after that, that first visit, um, we do a two-visit model plan for our consultations. So our plan is to see them back in 30 to 60 days after that first visit where we can dive a little deeper, um, really do a little more exploration of um, developmental status, of mental and behavioral health. Also gives us a time, as we talked about earlier, to see that child once they've settled into that home a little bit more. And so we might see some signs of trauma emerging. We may see you know, more interactions with other systems, like they have now been enrolled in school and we're seeing X, Y, and Z problem. Um, but it gives us sort of a, a good idea of how things are looking over time and we can adjust the support that we're giving. After that second visit, we um, do a handoff to a medical home. Um, and so our, our families and caregivers get to choose the medical home of their choice. We encourage them to stay with the same medical home the child has been with. So we will provide that information and say, hey, this kid's been followed by this clinic, looks like, and it looks like they've got a great relationship with provider so-and-so. Um, would you be able to take them back there? Sometimes that's possible and that's great. And sometimes not, because we know that, that kids can get placed you know, two hours away from where they were before. And sometimes it's just not possible from a geography perspective or the family you know, has a relationship with a certain provider that they've always taken their kids to. So then we'll hand off all of the information and send all of our notes to that new provider to say, hey, heads up, this kid is coming your way. Here's the background and work we've done. We've done the screening work. We've done this evaluation work. Here are recommendations and here we're, here's where we are. Go ahead and, and start the file. We also send a letter to the old primary care provider to say, hey, you had been following this child just a heads up. They are transferring care to this, this new provider. That's what's going on. Um, and then... If needed, we can facilitate primary care within our institution. Um, and so we do have primary care at Cincinnati Children's and for kids and families and caregivers who do not have a place in mind where they wanna go, um, we'll establish care within our own system. 
And then when the child, if and when the child experiences a change of placement, then that process essentially starts over. Um, and so they'll come back in for their initial screening within five business days. They'll do that 30 to 60 day visit, and then we'll do a transfer to whoever the new medical home is gonna be. Um, the end result is that there, there are some children, admittedly sort of a small number, they could only see us twice because they are in a super stable placement and they are, they've reunified very quickly and they've done very well. Um, that, that's obviously more ideal. Um, what tends to happen is that we know our kids on average experience three or more placement changes that they will come through over time and we'll get to know them pretty well. Um, and then for some of our patients, in particular, I would say teenagers, they end up getting a lot of care through us because they have known us with every placement change. And so we'll support them in other ways where we can in terms of um, reproductive health or substance use concerns and things like that. Well, I would say we do sometimes see kids, especially newborns, a little more, we'll see them more frequently because they often, we don't have a medical home to hand them off to. So we'll see them for those weight checks and make sure that things are are starting off well or helping to to troubleshoot when when there's been in utero drug exposure and making sure that that things are are stable. Um, so we'll see them every couple of days or weekly until we can get them into a medical home. So we do have some flexibility with that. Yeah. That's a great point, Julia. Really the goal of the check center is to serve as a, a safety net and that there really would ideally never be a child who had nowhere to go for a problem or a concern. So we always tell our families, like we have these two sort of mandated structured visits, but you know, if you were having trouble getting in somewhere in the interim, or you have a problem that comes up that, that really we would be well suited to address, um, you're always welcome to come back. So no one, no one has ever kicked out of the day center. Yeah, it sounds like you're, um, you want to make sure it's like a safety net that they're getting the care that they need. Um, you're realizing that sometimes there's delays in getting in established with, um, you know, the primary care providers and making sure that they get what they need. I hear the same, what you said at the beginning, the same common thing, see them early and often kind of is, is just continuing to ring through, I feel like this whole conversation. One of the things I wanted to touch on, um, I've had the, uh, the pleasure of um, talking to some mental health therapists, just kind of from their perspective related to trauma and the importance of like getting kids in, engaged in, in treatment, uh, specifically like some trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. From like a primary care standpoint, what do you think is like, what advice do you have as far as for screening for trauma for ACEs, those kind of things in, in, in clinic? Yeah, so that's a really great question. Um, and I will say what we have done has evolved over time. And we do things a little differently now than we used to. Some of that um, is because of resources. So we're really fortunate over the last five years or so to have embedded psychologists in our program. And so our psychologist sees every patient at every visit. And that's really changed a lot of what we do. Um, but thinking about sort of advice for primary care, and I think this is a topic that has a lot of different opinions that are really valid, um, but I will give you mine. Um, initially, you know, we, we did a lot more in terms of kind of trauma screening, symptoms of trauma screening, um, you know, adverse childhood experiences screening. And sort of what we saw in those first years of doing all that screening was that all of our kids had trauma, right? Every single one had trauma symptoms and every single one had experienced 
adverse traumatic events. And really just coming into foster care alone, you know, is one of those. And then whatever maltreatment they may have experienced before that and whatever difficulties they've experienced since coming in. And it, to me, felt like just counting all of the bad things that had happened to them was not really useful for us in our population. Um, instead, we needed to assume that every kid who came into our door had experienced trauma, um, and for most of them, quite a bit of trauma. And so over the years, we sort of shifted away from let's categorize or tally or quantify how many bad things have happened to you, and instead move towards a how is your trauma impacting you now, and what can we do to help and support you? Um, and so, you know, we use now a pediatric trauma screener um, that was developed by Brooks Keishan, who is um, a psychiatrist and child abuse pediatrician um, out in Salt Lake City. And it's very focused on the symptoms the child is experiencing rather than a inventory of what trauma they've experienced. Um, and it's pretty short and it says, you know, have you experienced trauma and and what type of trauma and what more, what, what are you experiencing because of that? Are you having trouble with your sleep? Are you having trouble with, you know, being feeling worried? Are you feeling sad? Like, how are you feeling because of things that have gone, happened to you? And then we use those symptoms to guide next steps in treatment, um, thinking about, you know, do they need cognitive behavioral therapy? Do they, you know, need other types of therapy that can be helpful and supportive? Are there, are there concerns about ADHD? We know that trauma and ADHD symptoms for sure overlap, but there are also kids who have both trauma and ADHD, you know, and, and do we need to pursue that more? And that's been a really good shift for us, I think. And I think our families have really, our children and our families have really appreciated you're asking us information because you intend to do something with it. And as someone now who works a lot in universal screening for social determinants of health and substance use and all kinds of other things, depression and suicide, I think that point is so critical that we can't ask a question if we don't intend to do something with it. And before it felt like we might be surveying for trauma and being like, yep, they've experienced trauma and we didn't do anything with that. And that's not fair to our patients and families. It doesn't help anyone. Um, and so I think our new approach is really guided on what do we need to know from you that gives us opportunities to help and support you and offer you programs and customized services or send you to different referrals. And I, I think that's worked really well. And so we are spreading um, some of that screening to our um, inpatient, to our primary care, and having other places that, that see these kids and, and are the ones who are having experiences with these kids and families to focus on what is the impact of trauma on that child and what are our opportunities to help and support that. And I think that for me in clinic helps me understand either with a child or with the caregiver, depending on the age of the child, what are some of those things that I can focus on? Like I obviously we know that that there are mental health concerns across the country, not just with children that are in protective custody, but all of our children have been impacted and access can be challenging depending on where you are at. Um, so knowing that this child is is maybe experiencing a lot of sleep issues that 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 still is going to need that trauma-informed care and helping to to you know is that cognitive behavioral therapy or what kind of services can we help 
get in place in the future. But there are things that I can do as a provider to discuss with the child or with the caregiver or both of how can we help support that right now. Um, and I think that's very helpful for me in looking at the overall picture. And I'm looking at something and going, they have this child has experienced so many um, ACEs that I don't even know where to begin to to help that that it, it really can be helpful to narrow down those things and say I can I can help with sleep. What are some things that I might be able to teach them in two minutes about deep breathing to help them with some of their stresses and anxieties? I think that's so true. Um, we use a similar model to you that you guys, um, as far as um, just looking at kind of what trauma symptoms do you kind of currently have and how can we help you and support you? And I think that's so important. I think it kind of goes back to kind of, I feel like all of our specialty clinics started screening for depression and they were screening, but then they didn't know what to do with it. And so it's kind of a similar thing um, of, you know, if we're going to ask these questions, we got to be able to help these families and help facilitate them to get to the services and the skills um, that they need to succeed. So I think that's, that's so important. Important. Um, this has been um, phenomenal. Y'all have been great. Um, I feel like in this discussion, and I feel like um, there's so many more questions that I could ask you, but I want to be respectful of time. Um, one of the questions that we're asking everyone that we're interviewing um, is if you could give one piece of advice to another advanced practice provider on caring for youth in foster care, what would it be? Julie, you want to go first? Yeah, I would say don't get overwhelmed. Deep, deep breaths <laughs> um, with all of our children. But I think that because these there is such a high need often that um, to to take it one day, one step at a time, and not not let all of that all of the different systems that are involved overwhelm you. That's a great one, Julie, just kind of taking care of yourself. I think one I would add, which is maybe just a little different from my lens, um, is, is using data and science to drive your care. Um, I think a lot of times, particularly in the, in the history of foster care health, we have done things because they felt good or they seemed good or it was an easy idea. Or we liked the idea, but it wasn't actually helping kids and families. Um, and so finding ways, even small, you know, quality improvement projects or just gathering a little data or looking at other institutions that are putting out research. We're seeing more and more of that in foster care health. Like that data can help drive us to know that, that this intervention works really well for these kids in this, in this setting and this one does for these um, so that our, our approach is more science-driven and we're delivering care that, that works. I think that's really important. I think that's so important. Um, and one of the things I want to mention, if you do go to the um, American Academy of Pediatrics, they have all the various um, clinics across the nation that are, are doing this work and can be a great resource as far as to kind of, you know, if you're in your state, you know, find out kind of, you know, if you don't know what the guidelines are kind of for your state being willing to reach out. I think a couple things that kind of came through is kind of see them early and often um, and then making friends um, like in your area. I'm, I'm all about wherever I am. Um, who can I make friends with? Who can I use as a resource? Who can I learn from? Um, and so I think those are two important things that y'all kind of hit on. Um, as we close, is there anything else that you feel like we didn't touch on or that you would like to share? 
I'll just add a, a little plug since we've been talking about a lot about AAP recommendations is that the, the Fostering Health book, which I, I referenced as sort of the first, first iteration of guidelines is under revision right now. Um, and so there's a lot of folks out there who are contributing to chapters and, and writing and there's gonna be a new version coming out um, in the end of 2024, early 2025. Um, and so that is chock full of information and recommendations for providers and primary care and in consultation clinics for caring for children in protective custody. It has gone from 10 chapters in the original version to 40 chapters in this revision. Um, so I, I think there's lots of good information coming that, that will be a good resource. Thank you for sharing that. I think having those resources is really important, especially if this is, if you are in a primary care setting and not seeing children that are in protective custody on a regular basis, that, that having those things to be able to grab really quickly and say, oh, there's somebody on my schedule today. What do I need to remember? Because we have so many things that are running through our mind that having quick access to things is, is really important. And those good resources are key. Thank you guys so much for sharing your expertise and your knowledge today. Um, this has been wonderful. Um, well, thanks for having us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Teen Peds Talks, Children in Foster Care, brought to you by the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners. If you like this series, be sure to look for other episodes and explore our other series all on pediatric health. Visit napnap.org and click on the Team Peds Talks menu item under the Continuing Education tab. The conversations are available wherever you listen to podcasts. Search Team Peds Talks on your app on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or on anchor.fm. We are always looking for volunteers to continue our vision and our mission for the Alliance for Children in Trafficking. So please feel free to reach out to either Tracy and I via the website. Uh, we would love to have you. Please join us again next time and thank you for listening.